Moto America fans, it's time for another episode of Off Track with Carruthers and Bice. You'll laugh, you'll cry, and you may even learn something from this unlikely pair and their special guest. The mic is yours, Paul and Sean. Hey, boys and girls, this is Paul Carruthers, and this is Moto America's weekly podcast, Off Track with Carruthers and Bice. As I mentioned, I'm the Carruthers part, and the Bice part is out in Ohio. And uh, Sean, we we never see each other in the during the off season, but uh, we're going to get that opportunity th- this weekend. Yeah, actually, probably well, if not late tonight, then tomorrow. Yeah, it's going to be good up in Sacramento. Uh, going going to get together for Cameron Bobier's uh, wedding, which I'm sure for him, when we talked to him on the podcast, he was saying. Shelby had was doing most of the prep for that stuff. So I guess what he's just going to show up and he'll be all good. So, yeah, and, he, you know, he got to skate through all the planning by doing that silly little Moto2 class. So, um, yeah, she, I think she had to do all the work with her family and stuff. And I know she was over there towards the end of the year, but then she did come back. You know, she didn't stay for the test. She came back to uh, to do some work. But I, I think they're pretty organized. If they're not by this point, then it's a bit late. So, yeah. Hey, Paul, I got to tell you, so, of course, you know, last night I was uh, messaging you guys about the fact that, uh, you know, last night I ended up going to see Genesis in concert, which is one of my all time favorite bands. And I have a reason for bringing this up. Um, We had a great time, by the way. It was fantastic. I mean, it's amazing to see those guys. They can still play real well. And Phil doesn't do the drums, but his son, Nick, is incredible. He sounds just like Phil. But um, one of the things I realized, the opening number and one of my and one of my favorite songs, they did a, a song called Duchess. Anyway, I cried during both those songs and our guest today is going to completely identify with it because I cried in a press conference about him. So, so I don't know what my problem is. I just get so emotional over this stuff. Dude, what is wrong with you? I don't, I don't know. I'm just sitting there and going, I'm crying again. There's no crying in racing or crying at a rock concert, but I do both. God, you should have smoked more pot or something. <laughs> my problem is i was overcome with emotion <laughs> well if you cry at cameron's wedding i hope you're not sitting by me <laughs> oh i probably will you watch I bet I will. <laughs> all right well let's bring in let's bring in today's guest who uh other than my father he's he's the only person i know that still has an aol account but um <laughs> it's kind of nice when we have josh hayes on because i absolutely don't do any research whatsoever because I have actually seen everything he's done and so is everybody else. So we don't even have to go into it, but Good grief. He, he, yeah. Right. He's a four-time AMA Superbike <laughs> champion. And I want to start off by talking to you a little bit about, I know you love motocross and I know you like going to all the supercross races. And did I see that not so long ago you raced motocross at Glen Helen and did pretty well? Yeah, I did. I did. Um, you know, I, uh, it's funny. I do love motocross and I love training motocross and, and most of the guys I, I work with and train with, we all ride some and they had the, the, what, what vet worlds or world vets out at Glen Helen recently. And, uh, so in, in my life though, I was a road racer first. I started road racing first and I started training on motocross after I was a pro road racer. So I was 25 years old, but I always had the bug and loved it. I never raced a whole lot. So I'm, I ride, I've ridden a lot over the last 20 years, but I don't have a lot of gate drops. I ended up doing the two stroke world championships at Glen Helen in April, right before Brettley was born. And then I went back out there and, and, uh, after what, five months of travel following the Moto America season and did the, uh, 
did the world vets in the 40 and 45 age group expert class. And man, I had a ton of fun, got to mix it up and, and meet a lot of new people Met, saw some old friends. Uh, I don't know if you guys remember Kevin Foley. I ended up in a, yeah, bar. I Kevin. he actually yeah. texted me after and told me how did, how well you did. Oh yeah. Awesome. yeah. He, uh, he got me pretty good in the first moto. They had a water pipe break. And so there was a river running across the track and I was right on his rear wheel. And he shut the gas off. <coughs> Excuse me. He shut the gas off. And like right about the time his wheels touched that mud hole, he pinned it. And it and a wave of water went over <laughs> my head. And my hands were so slippery, I couldn't hardly hold on to the grips. But yeah, I got into a good good, good battle with Kevin. Kevin was in a in the 55 age group, I think, and I was in the 45. But man, it was a ton of fun. And and man, it, it, yeah, other than the fact that racing is hurry up and wait. You don't get a lot of laps on race weekends. I had so much fun and it's such a great crew of people to be riding around with. And I made a lot of other friends there and it was, I just, man, I had a great time. And I was, I was, you know, what made me feel blessed because I saw an amazing number of people who recognized me as a road racer and were like, Oh wow, you ride moto too. And we're pumped that I was out there. So that was, that was really awesome for me. Yeah. That's good stuff. Hey, Josh, you know, while we're on the subject to this, so, you know, you're still obviously very involved with Yamaha and pay, and pay attention to things. You know, let's continue the theme a little bit that Paul started. What do you think about the situation with Eli Tomac? You think he's going to keep it going this year now that he's switched over to Yamaha? Um, I think for Eli, it'll probably be a, something fresh and new to be motivated about. Like, and so I, I mean, regardless of whatever history you have, you just, you're start, you're stepping into something fresh and new. And right now, you know, the Yamaha team seems to be on the rise and star star racing's done a good job. And, you know, Dylan rode incredible in the outdoor stuff and maybe Eli will bring some knowledge that can uh, help boost them in the supercross side of things. And uh, so, yeah, I would, I, I think that uh, it could be good things and hopefully for for everybody just to have some new blood in there um, and see what, see what happens. Yeah. I got a question based on that. Did you ever, I mean, you obviously had most all of your success or nearly all of your success with Yamaha. Did you ever think like, Oh man, I'd really like to go try something else. Or were you just stoked that you were where you were with the people you were with? No, I would say that uh, I, I got pretty comfortable, but you know, it's easy to forget that I did a decade of bouncing around before that, trying to find my way to Superbike, you know, and I got really comfortable with some of the people that I worked with. And I mean, Rick Hobbs, when, when I was at Aaron and racing, Rick Hobbs was a, a godsend to me. And I, I, you know, I attribute so many people's success. I mean, Josh Heron's championships, Cameron Bovier's championships, my stuff, like he's been involved in all of that. He helped whenever I was there reinventing myself at a little bit at, uh, Arian and he was my crew chief and he was just such a calm demeanor and, and an amazing, you know, person to work with organization and all that kind of stuff. And so, you know, there, there were people along there. Then I got in there with, with rounds and, and Jim and Halvey and, you know, Jeff and Vito and Paul and all the guys over there at Yamaha, we were really a family. And, as long as we were having success, you know, which I did for pretty much my whole time at Yamaha, the toughest one was the last year that I raced there. And that's a hundred percent on my shoulders, you know? And, but I, I had been there, I'd seen that, seen things and, uh, 
you know, I was in a good spot. So I, I wasn't really looking for anything new, not within the paddock. I mean, if we all want to go to the next level or the next step, which would have been, you know, maybe in the world championship. And that would, that was the only thing that ever sat in me that I would like to have done is going to the world championship. Josh, you know, we, there's so many subjects we can talk to you about. And, you know, you seem more busy now and you were, you've always been busy, but you're even more busy now with a couple of kids and everything else you're doing and what you do with Moto America as well. But one of the things I want to talk to you about is this past year with, with Jake and then with Cameron, um, you know, when you, in 2012, that was an incredible year for you. I mean, you had, you had set a new record that year with 16, uh, wins in a single season. You had the 10, the record of 10 straight until Gagne broke it. And uh, well, actually, actually what uh, Cameron tied it last year and then, then broke it this year. And when we were in that moment, I say we, cause I was on that team with you and, you know, you know, jokingly, I always had a knack for saying the wrong thing at the wrong time sometimes. But at the same time <laughs> yeah, exactly. But excuse me at this, I'm getting choked up at the same time. Oh no. No, I'm not. Crying. I'm not crying, <laughs> but I will. But um, that year, you know, I it's it's hard, and I think the other guys in the team feel this way. Sometimes you don't know what to say. You don't want to like mess up the mojo. And what's it like when you've got a string like that going? I know, I know, Gagne is so chill that it may not have even affected him. Cameron's a little different. When you were in the middle of that streak, did you ever think I I got to you know, I can't get superstitious. I can't make a false move here. I can't do anything different. I got to eat the same way, dress the same way. Did, did you get wrapped up in, in the moment of that whole thing? Or did you just let it, let it ride? I, I don't remember ever feeling that way, honestly, because for me, I don't know if you remember this, Sean, but like you, uh, Dave Swartz, there were a lot of people that would come up to me after the podium and tell me, or Paul even, and tell yeah. me about, this record or that record and being close to it or, you know, who I was tied with on the race win list or, or something along the way. And I'd be like, Oh, okay. That's awesome. Because for me, I was pretty head down and, and I, I was just greedy in the effect of, I wanted to win every single race. I went out every day, like it was a clean slate and brand new. And one thing for me was when I got to on a, on a good run and I had a good streak, then the points really started to play into my favor. And when I had a race worth of points, when I had 20, 25 points, I didn't feel like it choked me down with something I had to protect. I felt like it freed me up to be me, take chances, because I got myself to that position so I can do it again. So it allowed me to focus on just one thing, which was win today's race. And then the rest of it kind of came in, in tune, you know. And, and I got to be honest, I never thought we'd see anything like that again. I know how hard it is to do. It's so incredibly hard to have, you know, everything go so good at so many different racetracks, so many days in a row. The amount of luck that you have to have to be able to pull that off is pretty incredible, you know. And I mean, look, Jake got lucky. He, he fell down at Brainerd and then somebody else falls down the next corner and then they throw a red flag and he got a chance to get back into it or else the streak would have never happened. That's right. It would have been done a long time ago. So, I mean, like it takes a, an incredible number of things to go your way to make it happen. And now to have seen it happen nearly two years in a row, <laughs> you know, with my team. And I, you know, I, I told both Cameron and Jake, I'm like, man, I'm, I'm so happy for you guys. The only thing that bums me out is that you don't have to beat me personally to get that record. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
That's tough. Because <laughs> well, yeah. Sean, you mentioned like guys not really. I think the guys that get records like that are the ones that aren't thinking about it. Does that make sense? Yeah. Because it just it just happens, and they just go about their business, and and all they want to do is win, and that's all they end up doing. Otherwise, it's too. It's a lot of a. It's a lot of weight on your shoulders if you're thinking about records one race to the next like i just thought about one race to the next which i had done my entire career i had 19 20 years of that in my, in my blood of every race i'm just trying to ride this one the best that i can so yeah i mean <clears throat> the guys that are feeling that pressure about oh i gotta get this or i gotta get that it's hard to make those things happen i mean just like anything we're trying to do you're trying to lose weight and get down to a certain weight and get to the last couple and it starts getting really hard to pull off you know did did Jim Roach, your crew chief, ever put you in the moment of anything regarding the streak or the you know the points or anything like that? At any point in, <laughs> when you were doing that, did he point that all out to you too much? No, he didn't care. He was the same as me. He was the same as me. One race to the next. We were just trying to win every single one of them. You know, Jim Jim's uh, Jim's level of motivation was you know he would hear me say something and he would remind me of what I said. <laughs> you know, like I said, I, I, you know, I, I, one time, uh, kind of jokingly between us is like, I'm here to crush everybody's dreams. I want them. I want to have no competition because they send everybody home because they can't beat me. That's why <laughs> that's what I want. Right. Like that was, that was like this picture of excellence that I was looking for. And, and so Jim would be like, don't forget, we're here to crush everybody's dreams here. You know, <laughs> like, and he would just remind me like, this is what we're here. This is what we're motivated to do. And like, you know, I remember um, when Blake and I got together at Road Atlanta that year, it was real exciting. Blake came back and won the race, but Jim, Jim knew me and he knew that I was pretty upset about it. Like the fact that we had gotten together, Blake fell down. That was bad enough. Like I didn't knock him down, but we, we were both kind of in the middle of it. We were wheeling over the hill. We come together, Blake fell. And I, man, it, I was distraught. So I come around, I go straight down to where he is. Blake wouldn't talk to me. And I kind of went to his pit and forced him to talk to me and tell me he was okay. And then we were all gritting back up. And Jim knew that I was upset about just the fact that there, that this thing had happened. Right. But Blake's starting on the back of the grid. I'm starting in the front and Jim knows me. So he walked up to me and he goes, Hey, listen, you don't owe that guy anything. You go out there and do your job and win this race. You know, and I went out and did, did, I tried to do the best that I could to, to execute, you know, but there was a lot of times when, when Jim had my back in some other ways too, that were really well, really cool. Uh, in what was it? 2011 when, when Blake kind of got on a good run and was winning more races than me, but I was leading most of them. I was getting pole every weekend and keeping myself in the championship fight, you know, Blake was always kind of stalking me and then would nip me and get me at the end of the race. And all of Blake's race wins were like at, you know, less than 0.5. And my three race wins were all with more than four seconds, you know? And I had all these trusted friends and people and peers around me going, Hey, listen, why don't you sit on Blake for the race and just nip him at the end? And I was like, man, it's too much pressure. <laughs> it's too much <laughs> pressure for me. Right. Like I'm just going to try to continue to force him. You know, I'm, I'm getting all these extra points. I ended up with a full race, 25 extra points from laps, lead points and pole points. And I go, I can't give that up. You know, like that's, what's keeping me here. And, and Jim was probably the one guy who kind of backed me up and said, Hey man, no, we're here to, to just keep driving the nail in. 
every chance you get. Don't give anybody a free lap. And, and like he backed my play on that. So I was lucky to have that too. You know, Josh, that Wayne, Wayne talks to Wayne Rainey talks to us, or we know this story about when John Kaczynski joined that team and, you know, his, his Wayne felt like I'm, I'm here to basically end, end John's career sort of thing. And, you know, I mean, it didn't, but um, in a lot of ways, I mean, he went into world Superbike and various other things. And, you know, I think I've got a couple of things I'm going to talk to you about today that have to do with some time passing. This one is a little bit like, like that in that you mentioned the thing that happened with you and Blake and you, and you went out of your way to let him know that, you know, you're sorry, you know, hope you're okay. That whole thing. But by the same token, you kind of ended Blake, Blake Young's career. I mean, that, mm, 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 mm. no, okay. no, 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 no. <laughs> Let's talk about it. Let's talk about that. Cause it feels like that, you know, cause you said Jim Roach told you stick it, you know, put the nail in him. So tell us about that. Well, I mean, don't, don't take that out of context. He just was telling me to do my job, right. To continue to not let this stop me from doing my job. Cause I didn't know anybody, anything, right. We were all out there for the same purposes and reasons. Now I, I can tell you that I, I don't think there's anybody who loves competition more than I do in race, motorcycle racing. And I absolutely love it. And I, you know, I told Cambobier when he became my teammate, I go, dude, I love you like a brother and I will never do anything to hurt you, but I will race you to the end of everything that I've got. Like I'd knock you down in my backyard for a Coca-Cola at the checker flag. You know what I mean? I got no problem like doing whatever it takes to win, but know that, I, you know, your personal safety and the fact that I need, we need all of us. This is a, this is a pretty small circus and we need all the monkeys in the circus. Right. right. So I, I do care about, and respect the people around me, even if I don't like you very much. Right. Like, and, and you know what, Blake and I had a pretty good relationship, but he had a group of people around him that want that, that were, were telling him that our series and, and racing needed this great rivalry. And I think Blake was trying to, to make that happen. And so, and, and in some ways he did. And on track, we had some incredible battles and, you know, our sport needed Blake Young. We didn't need him out of the sport. But I think Blake's, Blake's, you know, the reason Blake was out of racing not long after were just uh, some, you know, I, I don't know, I don't know, but I think some attitude things, you know, like the, he, I, I will say for a little while there, he complained so much about my bike that he sold more Yamahas than I did. I didn't even have to say it, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and, but, yeah. you know, I felt like the TV showed a different story. Like his bike was clearly faster than mine, but I was managing to get around the track. Well, and when he was in a position, he was an incredible talent and competitor that could figure out a way to win. But when he, when he would come in, I think he would bark at, at the people who were trying to help him and tell them what he didn't have rather than just give me another shot at him or whatever. And, and I think that had a lot more to do with him you know, and what happened with him in racing than anything with me, you know, but he and I, he and I had a decent relationship before and, and, you know, I, I didn't really have any problems with Blake and how I even liked all the cheese heads coming out, you know, that whole crew would come out and uh, they were, they were kind of like our guys from New Jersey there, the CFE guys yeah. prior to that, you know, and I remember him coming over and mad dogging me a little bit when I was warming up on my bicycle. And I was just like, dude, I'm so glad you guys are here. And they're like, God damn it, man. All right. Have a good race today. <laughs> so yeah, Sean, I remember those days pretty well because 
there, it was, it was a good rivalry and, and actually it was something we needed. And, um, it was, uh, I always got an, I always got a kick out of Blake Young cause he would, he would, as a journalist, he would tell me stuff and I'd be like, man, that's awesome. But I'd also know like, oh, man, you shouldn't say that, but you know, <laughs> <laughs> not my problem. But anyways, Josh, I, I, I know that you love racing motorcycles and I can't, you, you, you've, you've never used a retired word. And I think that's because I think we're going to continue to see you racing here and there. And I'm not talking about just motocross. I'm talking about the fact that there's always the possibility of you throwing your leg over a road race bike. And I know there was a lot of stuff that, that started up when you and Pridmore went and rode the attack bike up at, uh, yeah. Willow. but is there, I mean, is there, I've heard, I've heard rumors of Daytona 200 rides, et cetera, et cetera. Is there, what, what, what's true and what's not with this? Um, there is a plan in the works for Daytona. Um, and, uh, I, I, I think it's going to happen. I think they want to make an announcement, mm-hmm. uh, in time, okay. but, uh, no, we were planning on maybe a collaboration with another team that's been out there doing pretty good with it. And they wanted to bring in both me and Melissa, uh, with our experience and kind of put things together and see what we can come up with. And I think we can have a good motorcycle for that. So we are in process on that. Um, as far as the other stuff, you know, I, I felt pumped to be able to go out and test. And I, I listened to your podcast with Jason talking about that day, uh, as you call him the smartest guy, wait, wait you three are the, have the highest IQs in race. And I wasn't on the list. I, re- I think I remember. You're on, you know, I mean, a podium's only three kinda, people. I yeah. kind of hurt. I was kind of hurt by that a little bit, you know but, what? That's, I think a, but that's okay. That's okay. That was, if I think if we had it over the course of the entire season, you could probably finish in the top three in the championship. <laughs> it's not that particular race. Um, but you know, I, I really enjoyed that opportunity and I actually learned a lot because you know, things that the, the bike has developed and changed a lot from what I last rode and, uh, understanding that will, and, and, putting that together with what I see on the racetrack will help me probably with some of the coaching and things that I've been able to do. Being able to ride the thing was so much fun and it, it, it was very overwhelming at first, but I felt like I didn't ride too bad and I had done none of the proper things to prep for it. I found out at the very last minute that I was even going to ride this thing and I was as unprepared as I could be. Would I want that job, (laughs) man? I can't tell you how bad I would want that job to go race that motorcycle again. And I'm fortunate that I have a family, my wife, who, who would back that. And I, I would want nothing more than that opportunity to go actually show my children, you know, like not them just hear about how I rode a motorcycle pretty good once, but see me work hard and chase something that I'm passionate about and see it in real life, you know? Right. So yeah, I would love that opportunity, but you, you, you know, you're always going to struggle. It's always going to be hard to take a 47 year old man going as a professional athlete and superbike seriously. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Like next year I'll be 47 and it's just, that's, that's the real life side of it. And <clears throat> I think I could do the job. I can tell you that if I were on the outside I would be the guy telling you, what are you wasting your time? That guy's 47 and been on the couch for four years, right? I, I would be that guy. And, but I also know that 
I know the, the, I know the things that have to happen. You know, I have the experience. I've got the motivation because it's been taken away from me for a long time. And there's still not a person out there that loves it more than I do. And I, I would go to the ends of the earth to try to figure out how to win and beat Jake Gagne. And, you know, there's part of it is I think some of the people know that I would risk a lot to make it happen because I still want it that bad. And, but you know, it, it, <laughs> what are you going to do? You know, I can't change anything. I'm, I'm lucky. I'm not bitter. I'm not mad about it. I'm lucky. I had an, an incredible career. Right. Mm-hmm. And I just still love this stuff, man. I still want to get on a motorcycle and ride all the time. And man, to, to get the feeling back of a super bike and what it was like, it was pretty overwhelming. I've only ridden really street bikes. I, I had a little jaunt on the Westby bike when they were first developing it. And it was a bit, a little behind, but this thing to ride something that rigid with that much grip and that much acceleration was so awesome. And I, I'm like, oh man, it just got everything turning inside of me again, wanting it all over again. But I just don't think they're going to take it, take me very seriously. And like I said, I would be the guy who, if I were in their shoes, I would be like, yeah, you can't take that shit seriously. I mean, look, guy's 47 years old, but then there's me who started pretty late in life anyway. Right. I was a 19 year old kid who graduated high school and thought, oh, this looks like a cool hobby and went and tried motorcycle racing. And somehow I won seven national championships from that and had a 19 year career in pro paddock. So I kind of like being the guy that can break the rules and do something anyway. So (laughs) if they would give me the chance, man, they'd get everything I have. I would, I would empty the tank to try to do a great job for those guys. My question is this, and again, I'm probably going to sit on that couch with you, (laughs) A, because (laughs) I would, I would just, I don't know. I, I would worry about you a little bit, probably too much, but you're at, at 47, your brain is fully developed, obviously. And I think <laughs> at 47, your brain may be fully developed, but I think your balls get smaller and I, and don't take that the wrong way. But I, honestly, when you're 47 years old and you're racing against a kid that doesn't have any of the f- fears or responsibilities or a fully developed brain, perhaps, how, how do you beat that guy? Uh, you know, I've gotten a long way through hard work and I learned my craft. I, I might not be exceptional on any day, but I'm pretty solid every day. And yeah. I'm good enough. I think I'm good enough that I can keep consistent, solid pressure. And also with how complicated super bikes have become, I know that they're pretty cerebral. And so if I can sort out the puzzle pieces a little better than the next guy, I might actually find an advantage in there somewhere that works in my favor. Right. I'm just saying like, I, you know, I've been on the couch for four years and we went to a little test. I had planned to do the world vets race motocross, you know, that weekend and I had not done any prep work. So I went out and rode a full day of motocross the day before and then got up at four in the morning and drove the button roller to jump on a super bike. And I wasn't too far off. Right. You know, I was closer than I felt like I probably should have been all things being what they were. And so I, I think I could do it. If you, if you had given me, if I could have just gone to sleep and woke up the next morning, I think I would have been four to five tenths better. Yeah. Changing nothing, <laughs> you know, right. just because my head got up to speed on what the motorcycle is. Mm-hmm. And so, which would, which would make me competitive, I think, you know, but you know, like I said, this, this is all once, right. This is yeah. at the end of the day, it's just, it's just what I want. And, 
<laughs> I, I'm, I'm blessed beyond belief that I've had this career and that I'm still around the paddock and people still think some of the things I have to say are important, you know? And so I appreciate you guys having me on here and I appreciate the, the guys that, that want me to, to be involved and help them with coaching and things like that. And there are a few moments in, in coaching where I've gotten way more fulfillment than I ever would have believed I would get from someone else's results. <laughs> and, uh, but you know, is that fire inside of me still there? Yeah. I would, I can tell you, I was genuinely hurt when I wasn't even on the list to replace Josh whenever Josh got sick, Heron. And, you know, like they, they just went right over me. <laughs> I was like, dude, I'm here every week with leathers. They're in the van. You're like, they're ready to go. I don't understand, you know? And, and it's like, you know, to, to think that I would risk everything on a one-off shot, I think is a little short-sighted. I mean, I got a shot in GP. I got shots in world endurance and I, I, I did pretty solid with those. I know what they are. I know how to just try to do a good solid job and move things up and maybe help them with progress and, in development rather than risk everything to win, hoping I might get something out of it because I knew that wasn't the case, you know, but that's okay. I, I can see it from all sides. Okay. I want to go back to Daytona a little bit. And I've, <clears throat> I've been, I've been having some fun lately because I've, I've, I've got a chance to go back through the old cycle news and the stories I wrote and kind of bring people up to speed year by year on how the Daytona 200 went. And when you do that, you realize like, I think I'm at like 1995 or 1996 now, but you just realize how big of an event that was. And by the end there, I'd soured on it as had everybody else. And it just, it just wasn't what it used to be. And I know our goal now with Moto America is to make it what it used to be, if that's possible at all. And I think it is, is, is Daytona still have that meaning to you? I mean, is it still something that's, because I hear even the European riders that weren't even of an age that to, to see what it was like, that they've heard about it and they kind of think Daytona's cool and it still has this aura about it. Do you feel the same way? Um, from, from standing back and having been through the, the, you know, listen, I was a part of the conversation of this superbikes have outgrown this place. Mm -hmm. and, and I still believe that to ride a superbike around there is, is absolutely awful in my opinion. And, uh, I had some very eerie moments there. I, I, I explained to somebody one time, uh, you know, part of being a superbike rider was we went there and tested. And I think to end of 2012, we had some new front tires and this and that. And at that time, 2012, we were going 206 miles an hour through the trioval on a superbike. And at this test, there were only two superbikes. It was me and Blake, <laughs> the only two, two superbikes there. And I cannot explain to you how eerie it was to have. To, to, be, to ride Daytona and not see another motorcycle anywhere, no fans in the stands. Like there was no, like you felt like there was no purpose, right? There was no, nobody along the straightaway in the international horseshoe. The only people that you could see around the entire racetrack were the people that would come out in, at that Daytona USA or at the exit of turn four, which was right where if you lost the front, you were going to bounce off the wall and they were going to watch your demise. Right. <laughs> so it was very eerie. And having rid that, I, I remember going to Jim Roach and going, listen, you tell me how many laps I have to do to go home. <laughs> and, and I can't think of another time in my life where I've said something like that, you know, but when the event is happening, it's incredible. And, and I, you know, when I think get nostalgic and think about it, I think about when Supercross, you know, when we did it all in a one week deal, when it was, you know, right up to, we, we did what 
Wednesday, Thursday, or Thursday, Friday was road racing, or or Wednesday, Thursday was road race stuff, and then Friday was Supercross, and Saturday was was the big road races. Man, what an right. incredible! And there were flat tracks down the road as well. Yeah, yeah, and they were down the road. This now it would be right outside the speedway, right? Mm-hmm. So, yep. you know, at, at that time it was absolutely incredible. And when Melissa and I went back in 2019 to do the 200, man. When I could see the speedway and when we got there and you go to drive through the tunnel and the windows are down and you smell the race fuel, like it, it, everything came flooding back to me. You know what I mean? It was just like, oh my God, I'm in the right place. This is how you're supposed to start the year <laughs> right here, you know? So there still is that R when you see how big that speedway is and all that stuff. And I think for a lot of the Europeans and the people that have never seen it, it's a spectacle, you know, like it's, it's storied. And it's a spectacle. And, uh, you know, on a 600, it's not near as daunting to ride around. And it's actually somewhat enjoyable. I prefer the old original track to the short course that we had to ride the big bikes on. And uh, it's, you know, the race itself, the strategy is a little difficult. And in a lot of ways, depending on how it goes down, it's going to be just a roll of the dice. People like to talk about the strategy. I know everybody loves to talk about the strategy and Miguel and placement, da, da, da. And you do your best to place yourself as well as you can and do everything right. But a lot of what happens is also up to what the other people around you are doing. And if they're placing themselves correctly for their situation. And quite honestly, it's just a, you know, when, when we had in 19, that five lap restart or whatever it was, when we came down to the last lap, all of us placed ourselves where we thought we needed to be and you shook your hands, you rolled the dice on the ground and see what you got, you know, and there there's frustration from a competitor standpoint in that. And then there's also what an amazing show and spectacle it is at the same time. Josh, I want to switch up gears a little bit here. So I want to talk about, I mentioned earlier about the amazing season you had in 2012. Well, I want to talk about 2013. And this is another thing with the passage of time is maybe, maybe this is something we can talk about a little bit. And you know, it's funny. That was the year Josh Heron won the championship and he will admit this. But if somebody else says it, and I know he doesn't like when I say it, but, but um, it's I've always felt, and that was the year I cried at the press conference because I always felt like it's not that Josh Heron won that championship, but he did win it. But it's that you you lost it, you didn't win it, and it was through, in in my opinion, some things that were out of your control. And I want to talk about that for a little bit because that was the year of the crazy number of false starts and the fact that you were still winning races. And there's Josh Heron further back on the track. And we all have to figure out as fans that, oh, Josh won the race because they're taking seconds away from, from Josh Hayes. And to this day, before and after that, I've never seen so many false starts being called in a race, especially with, you know, somebody who was the, the you know, multiple champ at that point. Um, can we talk about that year a little bit? And what the heck was going on there? You don't have to name names if you don't want to, but did you really change your style to start differently after that? Like what happened? What was going on with those false? Uh, actually, Jim Roach made me, he, he said, no, you're going to do something different. We went testing and learned how to start with my foot on the rear brake. Cause I'd always started both feet down and it just right. felt awkward and weird. And he said, no, you're going to do a hundred starts until you can figure out how to not do this. And, and I, I don't know, man, I, I was sitting on the motorcycle. I was not, looking at it from the side and do i think i jumped that many starts i don't i know of a couple that i jumped and got away with kind of murder with right i clearly jumped a start at barber 
they gave they assessed me a penalty. This was early in the season, and I still managed to win the race by a fairly healthy margin, right? So their penalty didn't really help, didn't work. So they started increasing penalties, changing the penalties. And the one thing that happened was how they managed jump starts changed. Like the, the penalty for it changed like three or four times throughout the season. And at some point I felt like I was getting them for stuff that I didn't like, I put the bike in gear, but I didn't move. They saw the bike move. I got a jump start. Same thing happened the next day. I didn't get a jump start, you know? And I mean, what are you going to say? It's, it's hard to say. I, you know, if, if I'm in a bad mood and I sit back and I listen to this and that, I'll go, you know what? If I had all those, those races that I crossed the finish line first in, but got a jump start penalty and lost the race, I would have, <laughs> you know, I would have the record. You would. <laughs> and yeah. then some, you, you know what I mean? And, but what, what are you going to do? You know, there's, it's, a, it's a long time ago. I had, I, I did the best I could in 2013. I felt like I rode really well and I won a lot of races. I won a lot of races. Josh upped his game a little bit. Uh, uh, Roger upped his game that year a pretty good bit and had a good run. But, you know, I was still winning a lot of races and I was coming from behind. I remember, you know, I think Ohio, they didn't tell me I had a penalty, a jump start penalty until five laps to go in a 23 lap race. And in that time, Josh relaxed. As soon as he saw he had five seconds, he relaxed and I went for broke and I lost the race by like a tenth of a second. I managed to pull out a 4.7 or 4.8 gap on him in four or five laps, where if they had made that known earlier in the race, could I have pressured him into a mistake? And one, I, I think I probably could have, you know, but what are you going to do? You know, and it just, it just, the, the, the part that, that hurt the most, which I think you remember, Sean was at New Jersey where I ended up with jump starts both days. That was it. And the inconsistency with how it was done. Actually, one day they, I won the race and they didn't give me a jump start. And I, one day they did give me a jump start. But the same thing had happened in both races. I had done the exact same thing. And I went to him and I go, hey, listen, are you going to give me a jump start for today? And he goes, well, I didn't see you jump to start. I said, I did the exact same thing as yesterday. Nothing changed. <laughs> so what are you going to do? You know, like all I care about is consistency in the rules. And, and unfortunately, it just worked out the way it did. Then the hard part was, uh, when we went to Laguna Seca at the end of the year, um, Martin was on the Yosh bike. I think Martin also had a good season that year. Um, but the Jordan guys, I think, went and rode World Superbike and didn't even ride the U.S. Superbike race. And so I, 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 the only chance I had at Laguna was to put some pressure on Josh. And Martin crashed on lap three or something like that. So Josh rode around and finished like, I don't know, 17, 18 seconds back in second place without anybody that could really, there, there weren't enough competitors to really force, force anything to happen. And which, you know, so it was like, okay, you know, you got to take that pill. And at the end of the day, you know, Josh rode probably one of the more solid seasons he had ridden and he ended up winning the championship and I was happy for him. And I, I mean, of course I was bummed for me, but what are you going to do? Right. And I was bummed then, for Vice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then the next year we had the really short season. 
So yeah. we didn't get to have all the drama because it was such a, such a short season. And we, we were lucky to have John Ulrich start the Superbike shootout so that we had some extra races in there uh, that we could sort out. And I was able to, uh, you know, Cameron moved up to the big team. We still had a pretty flawed season. Uh, we had some weird calls at Road America and this and that, but I came out clean on those a lot more than I had the year before and, and managed to win the championship again. So, you know, I mean, they're, they're just good stories to tell at this point, you know, there's nothing you can do to change anything, but, uh, you know, I, they're what we got, you know what I mean? And so, Hey, I'm, I'm st- I, no matter what, I'm still four times camp. So I yeah. you can't take that back. You can't it, take it, it adds to the color too. I mean, 2000, you know, that year, that 13 year, you, you actually had won every poll that year, eight polls in a row. So that was a huge thing. 2015. I mean, you had a great year with that, but you know, Cameron beat you by four points on that. That was an amazing year too. You know, I know you, that was yeah. a tough one too. That was a tough yeah. pull to swallow too, because you know, we, I think, I think we swept the season that year and Yes, I, I won 10 races and Cameron won eight. But when I crashed somewhere, I wasn't able to pick my bike up and finish outside of like the top six or seven or something like that. So it, it hurt me worse than his mistakes hurt him. You know, like he still finished second or third whenever he had a bad day. I had a crash. I remember falling at like Road America at the, out of the lead and picking the bike up. And at that time, also the one other rule that was different was super stock thousand competitors were not counted in Superbike. So when we got to New Jersey, the last race of the year, Cameron, I'm, I'm winning the last race. Cameron had to finish like third or better to wrap up the championship, but he ended up dropping back to like seventh on track because it was all stock thousand bikes in front of him. He had to beat Chris Ulrich, I think, and had dropped a little further back on, on the track and was able to kind of ride at a pace that, that he was able to maintain really easily, you know? Right. Well, I mean, this is Josh, this is, of course, you know, this, but for the fans, this is how that was that year, 2015, we had 18 races that year. You, you, you won 10 of them. So you, you won more than half of them. You were on the podium in 16 out of 18 races. So you were only off the podium in two races the whole whole year. And And lost lost the championship. (laughs) Four points. But the yeah. reason I mentioned this, and Re- hey, hey, remind remind Cameron when you get to his wedding. <laughs> that'll that'll be a good little right rib before he jab. says I do. Yeah, a little rib jab for yeah, it. Yeah, four points, Cameron, and fifteen. What about that? No, but <laughs> Josh, the reason I bring this up, and I know you're going to remember this because your chassis man, Steve Rounds, um, used to talk to him about this. I used to talk to him about this, and you probably have this happen too, but. Steve doesn't remember. I'm not saying he doesn't remember. He doesn't talk about a lot of the success and all the crazy success he's had in his career, but he remembers every single bad thing that ever happened. And he, and he can remember it vividly. And I know that 2013 thing is like that. And I mean, obviously that weird situation with Daytona, and I'm not trying to end on a bad note in this podcast, but I'm, I want to ask you, do you, do you take the time to celebrate what you did well, or do you still think about certain opportunities that were missed at all? At this point, like, unless we're telling stories like we are today, I, I don't, I don't talk about the bad stuff. You know what I mean? Like, I, like I said, I feel blessed and lucky in racing and could things have been better? Yeah, they could have been better, but what are you going to do about it? You know, nothing. Like everything has its purpose and reason. I, I, I'm fortunate with, with hindsight and a little bit of, you know, like learned whatever, like 
when I got my first street bike, which was a salvage title bike, I wanted a Honda 900 RR so bad. I wanted a CBR 900 RR so bad. I could, I couldn't see straight. I didn't know club racing existed at this time. I didn't know you could have a path to go racing. I was a guy in South Mississippi with a job who had a shitty street bike and wanted a better one. And that was my dream bike right there. And I had finally gotten my bike pieced together enough that I could get somebody to buy it. And I went out for a ride on a Sunday with a guy coming to get it on Monday. And down there in the South, we'd get these little squall storms that would roll over. And I saw one coming down the beach there. And I said, you know what? I'm going home. And as I pulled through, uh, you'd have these storms that were probably a mile wide. So it'd be sunny over here and it'd be raining over there. And I had to ride through that squall. And a guy decided to make a U-turn and go back to where the sun was. And he stopped up traffic and I crashed in on the brakes in the rain and hit the back of the car in front of me and destroyed my bike. Oh no! And I, I had it all lined up on Tuesday. Like on Monday, a guy was buying that bike. And on Tuesday, I was going to get the, the bike of my dreams. I'd gotten the financing sorted out. I was going to get it. And that got squashed right there. <sighs> had I bought that motorcycle, I would have been so financially strapped. I would have never even tried club racing it would have never happened for me wow you know so i mean when i look back at it and i go shit i guess it happened how it was supposed to i was <laughs> distraught i was distraught i lost the love of my life in that day you know what i mean but a, a plastic number plate was pretty cheap i pieced it back together so i could still ride it to work and i went and tried wear a racing you know i met grant lopez through this through my uncle and and made a friend who could teach me the ways around club racing and helped me get to all the races because I wasn't making that much money. You know, Gina and all these people came together to help me when they saw I had a, some aptitude for racing. And pretty soon John Orch gave me a shot and gave me some motorcycles to go racing and wear with when his team was still doing big stuff there. And then I grew with that team until pro racing. Like you couldn't, you couldn't make this story up. Right. And, and it all started with me crashing the love of my life. So like <laughs> all these things steered me to where I am And like, man, I've been so incredibly lucky, even in the media, in the day of, of social media and, and a place where people can facelessly say some pretty mean things. I am, people are overwhelmingly positive to me. Like I, man, like I got no real complaints. All my problems are first world problems. They're not real problems, you know? And I'm, I'm, <laughs> I, I'm still here talking to you guys, you know, you know, like, and it's incredible and I love it. And I love being a part of it all. And, and I'm thankful that I met a wife who wanted to live the same life as me and be a part of all this too. Cause I couldn't do it without, without the backing of my family. Right. So we're raising our kids at the track in a travel trailer to leave this year with our daughter, two weeks old in a travel trailer and follow the entire Moto America season. I'm, I'm exhausted, <laughs> you know, like, and, and like, how lucky, how lucky am I, you know? All right. I'm going to have to end this, but I, there's one thing I want to ask you before we go. And then I promise that'll be it. But we had Garrett Gerloff on the podcast. I guess it was last week. It seems long mm -hmm. already, but I, I don't know if you listened to it, but you obviously are aware of, of what Garrett went through this year. What, what do you do? What, what, what would you do if you were Garrett Gerloff to 
get back to where you were without getting back to what you did, if that makes sense. Like what, what, what advice would you give Garrett Gerloff if he picked up the phone and called you and asked you what the hell to do? I think that Garrett's problems were pretty simple. You know what I mean? In my, in my mind, it's just a little over exuberance and timing was the only thing. There's nothing wrong with his riding or his pace. And one of the things that, that I wanted when, when Garrett came and we did work together, the primary thing we worked on was racecraft. And so in my, uh, in my opinion, it is the thing that, that I, I hate to use the word lacking weak point or whatever, but let's say that Garrett's racing IQ or racing experience is less than the people around him mm-hmm. as far as battling with people, right? He was a pure road racer and God, he's just honestly just been faster than the competition the, for big, the majority of his career. And he struggled when he got to Superbike here in the U S when he got up against the likes of Cameron, Tony, JD, and all these guys, Matt, all these guys with all this experience in racing. Right. And so then he goes to world Superbike, And the first thing he's trying to do is get his pace to be on par with those guys so that he can be there. And when he did, he started making the racecraft mistakes. And that's all I see. If he just was a little more patient with his timing, it has nothing to do with his speed. He has the speed. And everybody can see that. And he needs to not abandon that first. He's got to get back to showing his pace, which he's starting to do. But he's got to carry that into the race. And then just, he's got to just pick his timing on how and when he moves forward when he's at the very sharp end of the race. When he's been in the, in the mid pack and moving his way through, we're not hearing all the problems. He's not falling down. Mm-hmm. Even prior to this, it was when he could see the front of the race that he, that, that it would just get the best of him of trying to make it happen now. So he could showcase his speed and ride away from him and that he just needed a little patience there is my opinion. Okay. Yeah, that's good. First, he's got to get back to doing the fast laps. Right. Okay, boys. Well, Josh, um, I appreciate you coming on as always. We uh, we always learn something when we've got you on here, and I'm sure everybody else does as well. If Sean even with my anything, even with you know my everybody's low, learning, even with my low IQ. Hey, I told you know, <laughs> Josh knows this, Paul. I told Josh this a billion times. Josh is the smartest guy I've ever known. Now, Josh <laughs> college, is the smartest non-college graduate I've ever known in my life. I told him that a billion times. He knows I feel that. Uh, me, me and my AOL email address so just go home now uh, I just hope you're not still paying for it <laughs> nah, I don't I, I hope not either I need it's to probably it's probably billed on a credit card that you don't even know about <laughs> <laughs> that, that I haven't had for 20 years alright oh, you guys man. have a good weekend John I'll see you tomorrow sounds good All right, bye 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 guys